I invite you to be seated. Matthew. We're going to call him that by that name, but Matthew, the writer of the gospel by that name. Matthew is bitter. Bitter, I tell you. And it's a bitterness born of rejection. And it's ugly. I mean, ugly. He's writing the gospel, and then here he comes, and he takes these really cheap shots at his enemies. And, and the readings over the past three weeks have all been just one big piece strung together. It's like... Um, it's just like the blows are coming at you. First, there's the parable of the two sons, and Matthew insinuates that the Jewish leaders who have rejected him and the other members of his congregation are the son who fails to do the will of the father. It's like jab, right? And then it catches them off guard, and he quickly follows up with a second jab. He says, um, yeah, you're like those tenant farmers who, when the landlord sent his servants, killed the servants, and then when he sent the son, you killed the son. And then he follows it up with a hard right hook. The knockout punch, the part about the banquet, where there are the guests who don't show up, and so the, the king kills, I mean, they kill the servants who brought the message, and then the king slaughters all of the people who were supposed to be the invited guests, and I don't know about you, but I think it's ugly, and there is blood on the floor. Why is Matthew so vicious? Why? Well, Judaism in the first century came in a lot of different flavors. There were a lot of denominations, just like you have lots of kinds of Lutherans these days. And the newest on the block was the Jesus follower movement. And uh, Jesus was Jewish, his followers were Jewish, the apostles were Jewish, the earliest churches, if you want to call them that, were actually people worshiping in the synagogues that they always worshiped in. They were still Jewish. Um, some of them happened to believe that Jesus was the Messiah and that God's salvation of the world was going to be delivered through Jesus, and so following his teaching was the most important thing of all. And that's a small, tiny minority of the people in the Jewish congregations. And then you had a whole bunch of them who thought, well, Jesus was this really great guy, a prophet like Elijah. And then you had the Jewish leaders of the synagogue, and they tended to see Jesus as a troublemaker. So anyway, they're all dwelling together pretty well and putting up with one another in the, in the synagogues, and it's just a diverse community. And... Um, then things kind of start to fall apart and the synagogues begin to, to split. Matthew and the members of his congregation are all people who have been cast out of their former worshiping communities. They have been rejected, excommunicated, cut off, and there have been years of weeping and gnashing of teeth. It hurts. And it still hurts so much now for Matthew, some like 60 years later, that he is still festering with bitterness. And it's ugly, but we get it. About 120 years ago, something similar happened in a small town in central Kansas. There was this lovely old stone Lutheran church that rose up there out of the prairie, you know, built with pride, blood, sweat, tears, and all sorts of sacrifices on the part of this little congregation that had erected and had worshipped there for a long time. 
right across the road, it sat on the crossroads, it was just little county roads, kind of dirt and gravel. And on the other side of the road, there was a cemetery, which was the only remnant of the other Lutheran church that was erected across the street from the first one. The people who attended those churches were all related somehow, all part of that same farming community who had built that little town. And I mean, the, ex the extended families and extended family networks were just all bound up in that worshiping congregation. In the last years of their lives, some of the old timers from that community told me their story. It had happened when they were very small children. They couldn't tell me what had caused the split, some difference of opinion about theology among the grown-ups, but they remembered acutely what had happened next, and even 80 or so years later, the trauma was undiminished. One Sunday, they said the minister and half of the congregation informed the other half of the congregation that they were cast out. They had to leave because they were rejecting the authority and teachings of the church. I don't know, again, what the theological dispute was, but it had come to that. It literally divided families. So adult siblings divided. Parents from their children. Grandparents and grandchildren. Neighbors who had been best friends and helped plant and bring in harvest together. All of these people were completely divided and split off so that they would never literally look at one another or speak to one another ever again. Ever. At first, they agreed that the excommunicated bunch could worship in the sanctuary after the, the official congregation worshiped on Sunday mornings, which seemed only fair because after all, those people that were excommunicated had provided half the money and labor and everything to build the church in the first place. So they tried it out. And it, it looked like maybe it was going to work out. They could share the building, but it didn't work because after the first service would be over, the members, some of the men in the congregation, would urinate into the communion wine so that it couldn't be used at the second service. And then they described for me things that I do not want to repeat, uh, that they did to vandalize the buggies and the horses of people in the second service. So like out in the parking lot, they were doing horrible things, and these poor ant horses, I don't even want to think about it. And so the war began. And the elders in their 80s and 90s, reiterating all this to me, would shed tears, remembering how their parents would drive the wagon or the buggy past like grandma and grandpa's house where the cousins and the aunts and uncles are the house they used to go to every sunday for sunday lunch you know and spend the afternoon they would drive past there and everybody in the wagon or bucky was instructed to turn their backs as they drove along so as not even to make eye contact they lost so much they lost their families they lost their friends. They lost cousins and siblings. And it was devastating, crushing, rejection, years 
of bitterness and hurt. But by the grace of God, it ended with the grandchildren's generation. It didn't continue. By, by that time, they would shake their heads just, you know, like, wow, how awful. But they had reconciled and were moving on. But sometimes feuds go on and on and on. They get handed down, right? Matthew's bitterness gets recorded in the scriptures that are handed down in the church and preached on. And that memory he has of hurt and rejection becomes the root of anti-Semitism. And the anti-Semitism, the rejection and the persecution inflicted on the Jewish people, the pogroms, the ghettos, the gas chambers, the real estate covenants to keep them out of our neighborhoods, the exclusive uh, no Jews allowed golf courses and country clubs, the ongoing stereotypes and dislike that we see here every day in public places, the violence, all because Jews rejected Jesus. Forgetting that Jesus was, uh, Jesus was Jewish and the apostles were and remained Jewish and the early church was Jewish and those who today are Jewish are also and still God's beloved children. So now the Jewish people and the Christian people carry with them generations of pain and bitterness. And for the past week, the media has been full of speculation about who is to blame for the war between Gaza and Israel. And I just want to say, you know, <laughs> terrorism is always, like, despicable, regardless of who's doing it or how. I mean, it, this just shouldn't happen among God's people. But if you Google it, there is story after story after story and commentary about the long history between Arabs and Palestinians and Jewish people and Christian people, and everybody's wondering who started it, right? As though if we could figure out who started it, then we could justify their position in it. Does it date back to Abraham, who rejected his firstborn son and cast him out, Ishmael, who became the father of Islam? And then who favored his second-born son, Isaac, who became the father of Israel? Maybe. Did it start when the governments didn't want the Jews uh, and needed a solution to collective guilt and so had to establish the nation of Israel and plopped it down in the middle of a place where Muslims had been dwelling for centuries? Or was it the Arab-Jewish War in 1948, some speculate, and the state of Israel's policy of trying to move all Arabs out of the land, kind of a policy they seem to have been using ever since, uh, uh, Arab people who've lost the olive groves and the farms that their families had farmed for 300, 400 years? Bitterness, that's all I can say. Mountains and mountains of bitterness, right? Hurt, born out of rejection. And yes, nations have a right to defend, absolutely. But then the question comes, but where does it end? Where and when does it end? In another story we heard today, Moses, the leader of the Israelite people, right, has left the Israelites down in camp. They're out in the wilderness still. You remember, they've left Egypt. God sprung them out of Egypt. They crossed through the Red Sea. God gave them water in the wilderness. God provided manna, 
honey-like bread from heaven and quail in the wilderness and told them where to go next and protected them every step of the way. Well, they're in the wilderness. Moses goes up the mountain to talk to God, and Moses is gone for over a month. It says 40 days. Well, it's just a long time. And the people who were down in the camp get restless, and they're nervous. Well, Moses, did he go to the promised land without us? Did he die up there? Has God abandoned us? And so they decide to take matters into their own hands, which is what we do. We get anxious, and then we start trying to make something happen. And they said, okay, fine. If this God isn't with us anymore, we'll make for ourselves one of those gods we had back in Israel. You know, the one that rides on the back of a bull. And so then they have the plant. And Aaron, Moses' own brother, helps them do this. And they take all the gold, they melt it, they make it into the shape of a bull, they create an altar, they're all prepared to worship, they have a feast, and they say, this is the God that led us out of Egypt. How quickly they forgot the Lord. In the meantime, God's up on the mountain with Moses and sees all this and says, your brother and those people are doing a really awful thing. They have made for themselves an idol and they're worshiping it, and they have forgotten all about me. And God's mad because God feels rejected, right? Cast off. There's bitterness. There's anger. There's pain there. God wants to be loved. God desires our love. God's done everything right. And then it's like, and they've abandoned me and gone and given credit to some false god of Egypt. And God says, that's fine. I, that's it. I, he's so enraged, or she, it, God is so enraged that God says, I'm just, I'm going to annihilate them. I'm just going to set fire to the whole camp and just poof, they're going to be gone. And we'll start a new plan with you, Moses. Now, Moses is being offered everything. He's going to be the father of a whole new nation with all the blessings of God in the promised land. But Moses doesn't take that temptation. Instead, Moses does what we need to do for one another. Moses reminds God of who God is. Moses says, this isn't who you are, God. This isn't your character. You're the God that makes promises and keeps them. These are your people that you let out, that you've protected and provided for. You promised to be with them and to accompany them. You are their God. You're responsible for them. Your reputation is at stake here. Are you going to act in a way that's true to your character, to your values, of what I know about you, Lord? And God relents and decides not to annihilate the wayward Israelites in the base camp. God relents, and God continues to provide for them and to stay true to them and to guide them, to love them, forgive them. In fact, the whole remedy for bitterness is forgiveness. That is the remedy. So Matthew recounts a parable that was told by Jesus. Now, we know what it, stood like, what it sounded like in its original form because it's in the Gospel according to Luke, and it's also in the Gospel according to Thomas, which isn't in our scripture, but carries the same story. And in that version, Jesus doesn't say king. Jesus says there's a rich man who's going to give a banquet, and he sends out invitations, and everybody seems like they're going to come, but they don't show up. And so then the rich man sends, out the, sends servants out to invite everybody they can find in the streets, you know, everybody, good and bad alike. And 
they all come and there's a wonderful feast and this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. But Matthew's bitter and it's ugly. So Matthew says, uh, you know, they don't show up and then they kill the, the, the messengers and then God blasts them you know, and in the end, there's a guy without a wedding robe, and he gets not weeping and gnashing of teeth because he's in the outer darkness. I mean, this is like, Matthew can't wait to get back. We have people in Israel who are our siblings, whether they're Jewish or Christian. We have siblings in Christ in Palestine. I don't know if you know this, but the Evangelical Lutheran Church of Jordan and the Holy Land is our sibling church. And there are a lot of Palestinian Christians living in Gaza and in the West Bank. And our bishops go every year and visit these congregations. And this year, they ordained, the Lutheran Church there, ordained its first woman Arab uh, heritage minister. The very first one. It was amazing. You know, had a fabulous celebration. And the bishop of our synod was there, the bishop of the ELCA was there. Wonderful celebration. And they toured the schools run by these Palestinian Christians, these underground schools that, that educate Muslim children, Jewish children, Christian children. Those children would sing for them and dance for them every time they visited. And they said they didn't know any differences. And there was just so much love and joy in the midst of a whole lot of poverty and suffering. We forget them. Jesus came for everyone, for all of us, all of us, and invited all of us to participate in the community of love and joy and forgiveness that he called the reign of God. He reminds us that we are all children of the same creating God who has called us into being and given us life, that we are siblings together with him and one another and with all people in the, in the world and heirs to God's promises. And that in the fullness of time, when the final celebration begins, all of God's people are gathered together, including the Palestinians and the Iranians and the Arabs and the Americans and the Israelites and the Jews and the Russians and the Ukrainians and the Africans and the Europeans and the Guatemalans and the Mexicans and the people from Peru. Everybody is invited to the banquet because Jesus came for all of us with all of our different languages and all of our different ethnicities and all of our different heritages and cultures came for all of us and now we are sent out as his servants to invite everyone to the banquet of life. But what about the one who didn't have a wedding robe? He did. He did. Because whenever this story is told in the ancient Middle East, the person who throws the party is responsible for providing a robe to every guest who comes to the door. The host provides a robe for every single guest. He had a robe, he just didn't bother to put it on. And God has provided us a robe. A robe of love. A robe of forgiveness. A robe of mercy. A robe of righteousness. A robe, a robe of blessedness. Amen.